thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Well, a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Chris Smith, and with Dr Catherine Hawkins. Hello, Chris. How's it going? Very well, thank you. On tonight's show, coughs and sneezes spread diseases. Indeed, we'll be introducing you shortly via our Naked Science Laboratory where Dave Ansell and Derek Thorne are waiting with bated breath to introduce you to the world's snottiest nose. You'll have to find out what that's all about. And also avian flu. It's been all over the news, it's been all over the newspapers, and it's all over Eastern Europe, we're told. But what actually is avian flu? Is it a risk? Is it a danger? What's going to happen if it arrives here in the UK? Are we prepared for it and how are we actually going to cope with it if, we, if indeed we need to? Well, to help us answer some of those questions, we have here in the studio this evening from the Royal London Hospital down in London, Professor John Oxford. Good evening, John. Yes, hello. And we also have from the Health Protection Agency, the Chief Executive, Professor Pat Troop. Hello, Pat. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Well, that's up to, it's up to you, really, to ask us any questions you'd like us to try and cover for you this evening. So if you'd like to talk to John or to Pat, or indeed to us, then the number is 08459 25 2000 for anything related to viruses and flu, emerging infections and how things make you unwell and what we can do about them, 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. What else have we got in store for everyone, Catherine? Well, apart from those um, exciting developments, we have uh, some other news stories this week. How a breakup in love could cause a breakout of your skin. And we'll also be hearing about glow-in-the-dark handbags, and they're very useful for finding your way around a dark car interior. I'm sure that isn't necessary for you, though, Chris. Solar-powered handbag. More about that in just a second. There's also our quiz, of course, Science Fact or Science Fiction. And we have some fab prizes, which Catherine will reveal to you in just a second. It's very easy. We give you three simple science facts, and you have to tell us whether or not they're true. If you get tonight's highest score, you could be walking away with one of them. Uh, Catherine, what have we got to give away? Ah, well, Chris, the lucky winner this week is going to be the recipient of the Encyclopedia Britannica 2006 on DVD, and it looks great, and it's worth about £100, so well worth having a go in the competition. So get calling now, 08459 25 2000, or email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Any questions to do with science, technology and medicine? Make us laugh. We'll probably find a prize for you anyway. Email me, chris at nakedscientist.com if you'd like to give us any feedback on what you think of the show. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Ah, could a lost love stress your skin? Researchers have found that the emotional stress of a breakup compromises the skin's ability to repair itself, making it more vulnerable to damage from free radicals and causing it to age more rapidly. Now, there's a study which examined women aged between 21 and 45, half of whom described themselves as happy, and half of whom were going through a relation breakup. Now, the skin of the women in the happy group repaired itself to an average of 90% of its capacity compared to just 50% of those going through a split. So 
men should think about that before they break women's hearts. And I don't want any snide remarks from you, Chris. <laughs> so, so with splits go zits, I suppose you'd say then. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. That's dreadful puns that should not be allowed. Now, um, if you have problems with your skin, then I would imagine that an extra large handbag would be the order of the day to carry all the cosmetics that you're going to need to sort yourself out. And I think um, they, you have a little story about that. You can help us with this handbag issue. <laughs> well, of course, the one thing that women struggle with is when they have bags containing the amount of stuff that they do, and I'm sure someone like you, Catherine, struggles with this too. I've seen the size of the bag you've carted oh, I, in this I evening. just need a tiny handbag for my cosmetics, Chris. <laughs> Wouldn't a solar-powered handbag that shows you by glowing up inside what's in the interior in the deep, dark depths, depths of the inside of your handbag, wouldn't that be really handy? Well, I've actually had a handbag with a, with a bag light on and then the battery ran out. Yeah, so, yeah, it would be more useful. What do you mean a bag that. light? What was that then? Well, basically, you opened the bag up and a magnet or some sort of contraption turned the light on and then when you shut it again, um, the light went off but eventually the batteries run out. And well, this one seeks to overcome that problem because this is solar-powered. It's been designed by Rosanna Kilfeder, who's at Brunel University, and she's a student there, uh, specialising in design, not surprisingly. And you've got a handbag which has a, a solar panel on the surface mm -hmm. and an electroluminescent lining. So when you go zzz, open the zip and look inside, the lining glows up this cool colour, showing you what's inside, and it stays on for 15 seconds, and then it mm -hmm. automatically goes off so the battery can't go flat. Uh, are they developing this for pockets as well? That would be quite useful, wouldn't it? But why do you need a pocket you can see in? Because you don't often look in there, you just put your hand in it. Well, it depends how big the pocket is. But the cool it. thing about this is that you don't only just run the inside of the bag, you can also power other things off of it as well, because it's got a rechargeable battery, and you can plug, say, your mobile phone or your MP3 player into it. So you can charge up your phone from your bag, you can, you can run your MP3 player from your bag, and when it's sunny during the day, it recharges itself. Oh, that sounds It's been great. dubbed the sun trap, <laughs> and they're hoping... Dream. It's been called the sun trap, and it's hopefully going to be on the shelves within a year or so if they can find a developer. Now, we have actually had a couple of emails in. Um, the first is actually just shows how far and wide our audience is. This is from Mark Evans, and um, he's in, in the US, and um, he just says, great podcast, thanks. So um, thank you, Mark Evans, for, 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 for that message. We've also had an email from Josh, and he's um, at the University of Wisconsin, and he has quite an important question. He says, hey, Chris, I, I love the show, it's great, um, and he has, says, I have a question about foot odour. I've always wondered what actually causes your feet to stink. Is it just from your feet sweating, or do other things come into play? Now, I think this seminal issue needs to be addressed right now on this show. Well, it may actually shock some people, but your feet squirt about half a litre of, of, of sweat into your shoes and socks every single day, which is a huge amount. It's a lot of wet stuff. And your skin, you shed in the, in the order of 40,000 skin cells every minute or so from your body. And over a lifetime, that lot adds up to a few stones in weight of dead skin. Now, this is perfect bacterial food. And so you have a combination of a warm place that's damp and it's got loads of food. It's, it sounds like a student house, doesn't it? But this is where bacteria flourish. They probably flourish in a student house too. But that means that your feet are a thriving emporium of, bank, of bacteria. There's a bacterial banquet going on in your shoes. And there's, there's bacteria there, there's fungi there as well. And there are some viruses if you've got verrucas, but they're not the stinky things. The bacteria and the fungi, when they eat these dead material in this nice damp environment, produce volatile substances that smell. And it's those volatile substances that come whiffing up that you can, you can smell. And actually, there's, with people wearing, having an obsession with wearing trainers that tend to sort of lock your feet in and make them stew in their own juices, that's what's made the problem worse. And actually, you can, you can get around stinky feet if you either put in some odour eaters, obviously, or wear sandals, because that lets the stuff ventilate, or you wear leather shoes, because it lets your feet breathe more naturally. You don't sort of stew in your own juices. So what you're saying is it's not the sweat itself that smells, it's the bacteria that smells. 
So in, in essence, people don't have smelly feet. They just have extra bacteria, bacteria on their feet, which um, I suppose isn't, isn't quite so bad. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Here's someone I bet hasn't got smelly feet. Sandra, you're in Northampton. How are you? All right, thank you. Oh, well, you haven't got smelly feet, have you? No. <laughs> but, but you have got a question. I have got a question. Um, I'm in contention with somebody at work. Sounds painful. Uh, well, I don't believe what he says, but um, silly as it sounds, I'm going to ask a question. You go on then. All right. He, he, he maintains that if you hold your breath, um, this changes the bone composition that enables the human body to um, accept a, a low current, if you like. You could put your finger in a, in a light socket without the <laughs> palm coming to you. <laughs> right. And, and so he's trying to tell you to put your fingers in a plug socket whilst holding your breath and you won't die. He's tr that's what he's trying to tell me. D yeah. Does this person like you? Uh, no, this is a fairly strange person. I think he must be. I, I also think he, he's trying to get rid of you, Sandra. Oh, I don't know what he's trying to do. Well, the, the reality is that if you take a deep breath, the only thing it's really going to do is A, affect the volume of your lungs and B, affect your blood pressure and heart rate. Right. Because when you take a deep breath in, it uh, triggers a reflex which makes your heart rate go up a little bit. Right. But that's about all. It won't affect anything to do with your bones and it certainly won't affect whether or not you can tolerate being electrocuted. And if you put your fingers anywhere near anything carrying mains electricity, you almost certainly could be killed. Of course. So you must not do that and you must tell this person to stop spreading silly rumours because he's going to get someone killed at some yeah, point. Well, he maintains he's got it from friends who studied biology and physics. Uh, have you invited him to try this first? Uh, no, but he was trying to fix a photocopy. <laughs> switched on and this is how this came about <laughs> I, 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 would, I would urge him to try his own experimentation before urging you to do the same Sandra to be honest No. you can be the control and not put your finger in the socket and he can actually do it well, and see whether it works I'll stand and watch him <laughs> yeah I should do if not failing that November the 5th is coming up and you can tell him that if he takes a deep breath and stands on top of a bonfire he won't get burned yeah. <laughs> ok let's have a go at the quiz uh, if you were a space traveller standing on Jupiter, you would weigh the same as you would on Earth. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Fact. No. I'm afraid not. It's fiction. A person who weighs 50 kilograms on Earth will weigh 13,200, that's over 13 tonnes, on Jupiter. Now, this is because your weight is a measure of the pull of gravity between you and the body or the planet that you're standing on. Mm -hmm. And Jupiter's quite a bit larger than Earth, and larger planets have more gravity than smaller ones. So on Jupiter, gravity pulls you harder towards the planet, meaning you would weigh more there than yeah. you would on Earth. Mm. Okay, Sandra, next question. Acetic or ethanoic acid is poisonous. Is that science fact or science fiction? Uh, fiction. Well, well done, you. It tastes great with fish and chips because it's the chemical name for vinegar. Well done. You could power a light bulb with the sound energy from a piano. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Uh, fiction. Well done again. To power a single light bulb, you'd actually need the sound energy from around 200 pianos. Right. Well done, Sandra. Two out of three. In the lead at the moment, but then you are the first caller. Right then. Thanks for your call. OK, thank you. See you later. Bye. Bye. If you want to be like Sandra and have a go at science fact or science fiction, up for grabs this evening, Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD. This is worth nearly £100, a fantastic prize. Get calling now 08459 
25,000. And if you're in an experimental mood from sciencesleuth.co.uk, we have got a slime kit. You can make your own slime at home, which is absolutely fantastic because you can demonstrate what snot is like. And talking of snot, coming up very shortly, we'll be nipping over to the Naked Science Laboratory where Dave Ansell and Derek Thorne are waiting to demonstrate to you the world's snottiest nose with the help of this week's volunteers, Sam and Ben. Now, incidentally, if you would like to volunteer your kitchen for a science experiment, we'll come to you on your terms and do an experiment in your kitchen live, just call now, 08459 252000. That's 08459 252000. Or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. And don't forget, we're taking any science questions on anything this evening. Make us laugh and we'll probably find you a prize. 08459 252000. Baffled by biology? Yep. Foxed by physics? Oh, yes. To get your question answered, call the Naked Scientist now on 08459 252000 or email chris at nakedscientist.com Let's head over to that kitchen in Cambridge to find out what Derek and Dave are up to this week with the world's snottiest nose. Yes, Chris, here we are in the Naked Scientist lab where we will be learning all about snot today. And first things first, we'd like to remind you at home that this is not an experiment that should be done. And indeed, you would struggle to do this experiment even if you tried, for the equipment we have set up here is so wonderfully bizarre. But you'll have to wait a moment to find out about that. And also to meet some of the guys we've got here to help us with the experiment. So please, guys, could you tell us your names and ages? Um, I'm Sarah and I'm ten years old. Excellent. And yourself? I'm Ben and I'm ten years old. Excellent. And you guys do science. What do you like about science? Um, I like new things because um, it's just really interesting. You don't have to do the same thing over and over again. Fantastic. And we're going to be showing you some very new things today as well. And Ben, what, what do you like about science? I like explosions. All right then. Any of that today, Dave? Afraid no explosions for you tonight, Derek. OK, but we've got some cool stuff coming up. OK then, so Dave, what have we got here, this bizarre contraption in front of us? Well, what we have is a three-foot-tall giant pink nose... And inside the giant pink nose, we've got two transparent nostrils going up inside the nose. And because the lungs to go with his nose would be about the size of this room, we've used two vacuum cleaners instead plugged into the backs of the nostrils. OK, so, th- yeah, as Dave says, this is a big pink plastic nose. It's about two feet tall. It's got two hoovers kind of going into it, and it's going to suck air through just like a nose really does. You know, when you breathe in through your nose, you've got air going through it, and that's what the hoovers are doing as well. And it's also being held up by boots, which is just... Completely random, but it looks so wonderful. OK, so, Dave, what are we going to be doing with it? Well, we want to find out what snot's for, OK? So, first of all, what else have you got in your nose other than snot? Any ideas? Uh, maybe hair. Oh, OK. He's good, yep. Yeah. So, first, in order to model the hair in the nose, we have a couple of pan scourers. So, if I just pull these pan scourers out, we've got lots of nice hair stretched out. OK, now what we're going to do is we're going to do a proper experiment. We're going to try um, inhaling some dust and rubbish like you get in the air up through both nostrils. One nostril we're going to have snot in it and one without snot. OK, now we're doing this, of course, because there is a lot of dust in the air. I mean, obviously we can't really see it, but certainly if you live somewhere like London, there's loads of dust, isn't there? Yeah, apparently there's about the same amount of dust in the air if you spend a day in London as if you'd smoke 15 cigarettes. And so we're very delighted we're not in London here today. We are doing an experiment in the Naked Scientist lab. So, OK then, Dave, so you've got these pan scours, which are really just kind of bits of iron wool, aren't they? OK, and we're going to use those as the nostril hair. Would you like these guys to do something? OK, we have a big bowl of lovely... <laughs> stringy snot. Yeah, so Dave's actually got this bucket then of kind of transparent snot which he's pulling up and down with his hands now and it's very stringy, so why is that Dave? Well in snot you've got some proteins. Now proteins are really long thin molecules that look like spaghetti. If you imagine putting a fork in spaghetti and pulling the fork out, can you just imagine the spaghetti goes all stringy and pulls out? Yeah, that, that's yeah. the same, that's what's happening at a much lower level isn't it? Yeah. 
So the long protein molecules all stick together like spaghetti does, and it all pulls out and goes all stringy, which is why your snots are horrible and stringy. Fantastic. Okay, then. So what are we going to do? We've got this little bucket of snot. Where does that go? Well, okay. First, Sam, could you soak the hair in the snot? Really get it in Whoa, there. there. All over your so Sam stuck really, his hands really in. How does it, it feel? Um, just sick. It's just <laughs> sick. I mean, what does it look like, do you think? It looks more like um, wallpaper gel. Okay, loads of goo everywhere. Okay, so we've soaked the, the iron wool there in the snot. What next? Okay. Now, Ben, could you take the other dry hair and stick it up the, one of the nostrils for me? So we've got two nostrils, basically. Now, Ben is sticking uh, this, this dry piece of wool that doesn't have any snot on it up one of them. And Sam, is he going to do the other one? Yeah, and Sam, if you could stick the snotty one up the other side. Wait, there, there we go. Okay. What next, Dave? We're going to get a big bowl of crushed charcoal to simulate the dirt in the air, and we're going to turn on the hoover. Now, in the tube to the hoover, there's a clear bit of tube, so we're going to be able to see how much dust gets sucked into your lungs. Dave just said about some charcoal there. We've actually got a a plate of charcoal. Where do you get that from, Dave? You've been smashing up charcoal recently. Yes, I (laughs) bought some charcoal briquettes and smashed them with a hammer, Derek. Fantastic. Okay, so there we go. So if you can imagine that then, there's lots of charcoal dust. Very, very black stuff. Again, it's going to be more and more dirty stuff for us to deal with here. Okay, guys, now then. Ben, could you turn on this hoover for me? I'll stuff the charcoal up the nose. Dave is now holding the plate of charcoal underneath the nostril and of course the air is because of the hoover is now being sucked up the nostril and it sucked up loads of charcoal okay so what happened what can you see up the nostril first this is the gooey snotty nostril it's all got trapped in the um, snot yeah okay then and uh, we, we can also look at the output here and kind of have a comparison so this is we've got we've put two pieces of tape inside the tube so, so we can compare the two pieces of tape and see which one's dirtier so this is some sticky tape that we've put in the tube to show how much charcoal has been going through the nostril. OK, Ben, could you tell me which of the two tapes is the most dirty? Um, the one without the snot. That's right, because the snot caught all the little tiny fine bits of dust and stopped them going into your lungs. So without snot, you'd get all the horrible fine dust in your lungs and your lungs would clog up and you'd basically just stop being able to breathe. OK, so does this explain what to you what snot is for, Ben? What do you think? Yeah, definitely. OK, and what about you, Sam? Are you now happy that you have snot up your nose? Oh, well, yeah. OK, fair enough. Well, <laughs> that's brilliant. And does this explain, then, Dave, why we blow our nose, I suppose? Because, you know, sometimes your nose does get a bit blocked up. So is that just like having loads of dust caught in your snot? When you've got loads and loads of dust up your nose, sometimes it's easier just to blow it out rather than swallow it, which is why you blow your nose. nose. And also, when you're ill, you get loads more extra snot to try and flush all the bacteria out of your nose really quickly. So you don't bother swallowing it. It just falls out the front of your nose. Sounds great to me. OK, well, that's brilliant, Dave, and I think we've explained snot, and we now know why snot is our friend, essentially. So very big thanks to Ooh. the massive pink plastic nose as well, which has helped us in this experiment. So, uh, Sam, what did you think of the experiment? Um, great. Great, and what about yourself, Ben? Very, very good. OK, and what have you learnt? Uh, that's not very nice. Excellent. So, yeah, snot, snot gets a, a good vote from everyone here. OK, then, Dave, so thanks very much. You've enjoyed it? I've been great, Derek. Excellent. You have been great. I agree. <laughs> it's been great. <laughs> yeah. And so have we all. So that's the, uh, the big story of snot here. And we'll be back doing some more experiments next week. Uh, do hope to catch anyone then. And uh, goodbye. Back to the studio.
Thank you, Derek and Dave, who were with Sam and Ben in their kitchen in Cambridge. Next week, we're off to Lakenham in Norfolk, where we'll be having a chat to Nathan and Michelle, and they're going to be doing an experiment for us all about cream and how you can turn it into butter, and that's all about polymers and emulsions. So if you'd like to volunteer to take part in a Naked Science laboratory experiment or a bit of kitchen science, get calling now 08459 25 or drop me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, waiting in the wings to come on, we have, of course, Professor Pat Troop from the Health Protection Agency to talk about what we're doing to get ourselves ready in case avian flu lands on our shores. And here with the bottom line on what is avian flu, Professor John Oxford from London. But before that, uh, I've been lucky enough to chat this week to Cambridge University's Dr Paul Diggard, who's a virus researcher, and he's found out how viruses, and in particularly flu viruses, have worked out a cunning strategy to get round that snot that's up everyone's nose. Flu's a virus... So it grows by taking over cells in in your body and turning them into factories that replicate more virus. And the cells flu infects are found in your airway, in upper respiratory tract, lower respiratory tract. It infects you by you breathing it in. It'll infect cells in your lungs, then it replicates in them. And then to get out and infect another person, you have to cough or sneeze the new virus particles out so they can be passed on. And so I breathe it in, it locks onto my cells, it then turns them into virus factories and I go down with it. But um, how does it actually get back out of me? I mean, in terms of getting out of the cells it's infected, how does it do that? The virus factories are releasing new virus particles from their surface all the time. I mean, one infected cell will produce 10,000 new virus particles. The peculiar thing about flu is that it makes two sorts of virus particles. There's one sort that is very small, perhaps one ten-thousandth of a millimetre across, like a standard-sized virus virus particle. But it produces a second sort that's a hair-like structure, or filaments, as we call them. And it's an interesting question as to why the virus makes these filaments, because the filaments are, are very large for, for a virus. These things are easily 20 to 50 times the size. Same diameter, but very, very much elongated. So what do you think they do? It's a very good question, because if you think about a virus factory, it can produce 10,000 new virus particles, say, of, of, of the small size. But the amount of material needed to make one of these hair-like structures is 20 to 50 times more. So that's 20 to 50 times less virus particles that can be made from that, that one infected cell. So they must actually be quite useful to the, to the virus. They must have an important job to do then. Yeah, exactly. And the virus wouldn't do it without a, a compelling reason. And I have to say, we don't know what the reason is. But the best hypothesis we have at the moment is that it's involved in getting past the mucus layer. Your respiratory tract is lined with mucus as a defensive barrier against, against all sorts of, of nastiness from the outside world. And this forms a coating over the, over the cells. And it's possible that these filaments are a way of reaching past that barrier. It's almost as though flu has its own snot escape kit then. Yeah. The filaments can poke past this layer of mucus and snot and then release virus much closer to the open air than the layer of gunk covering your nasal passage. Dr Paul Digard from the Cambridge University Department of Pathology, Division of Virology, talking about how viruses like flu might be able to poke their way past the snot in your nose, which, as Derek and Dave have told you, is there for a very good reason, which is to mop up junk which is coming in from the air and stop it getting deep into your lungs. If you want to ask the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, that's me, and Dr Catherine Hawkins, any questions... Anything to do with science, technology and medicine, our number's 08459 25 or you can email me, chris, at nakedscientist.com. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm-hmm. 
Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Becky, you're in Huntington. Hello. Yeah. How are you? Fine, thank you. And what would you like to know? Um, when you let the water out of the bath, why did it spiral down the plug hole? Ah, it's not just the bath, though, is it? Sink and everything, does it? Have you noticed? Yeah. And the toilet? Yeah. Have you got any idea why it might be, though? No. None at all? Well, is it the shape of the plug? Mm, well, that does have something to do with it, because you get a kind of uh, whirlpool effect, don't you? Yeah. Formed. But it, that, the size of the whirlpool it is affected by how big the plug hole actually is, but actually that's not the reason it does it. It's actually quite clever. I, I guess that if you had any idea, you wouldn't be phoning us, but ha can you think what might make a difference to the direction the water goes down the plug hole? Which side of the earth you're on? Mm, because if you go down to the southern hemisphere, where people live in Australia, what happens there? Um... Circles the other way around. It certainly does. Now, do you know why that might be? Um, uh, no. Well, the reason is, what's the Earth doing? Every single second that we're on it, what's the Earth doing? That gives okay. us... It's spinning. It gives us day and night, doesn't it? Yeah. And because the Earth is turning, things try to turn with it. And if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, things try to turn away from the equator towards the North. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, they try to turn away from the equator towards the South, because quite literally, the planet's moving and the things on the top of it get left behind a little bit. And that's what makes the spinning motion. And that's all it is. And if you look at storms like hurricanes, the ones that have been battering America recently, they spin as well, a bit like your whirlpool in your bath. But the hurricanes that come along to the coast of America also turn. And if you look at them from space on satellite pictures, then you get these fantastic spirals just like whirlpools in the sky. All right. It's all to do with the direction the Earth's turning. Oh, thank you. Clever that, isn't it? Yeah. How do you fancy winning yourself either an Encyclopedia Britannica DVD, which is worth about £100, so you can learn even more fa funky facts and figures like that, or a slime kit from Science Sleuth? That'd be great. All right, then, here we go. The sea is becoming more salty as years go by. Fact or fiction? Fiction. Well done, that's the correct answer. Salt in the sea comes from minerals washed off the lands by rivers over millions of years, but the levels of salt are no longer rising because if the levels climb any higher, chemical reactions kick in which remove the salt again and lock it away in, a new, in new mineral deposits. Brilliant, Becky. One out of one so far. Most of the Earth's oxygen comes not from rainforests but from the sea. Do you think that's true or false? False. No, I'm afraid that's actually true. Uh, tiny plants called plankton live in the sea and make nearly three-quarters of the Earth's oxygen. The biggest is about one millimetres across and the smallest is about 50 times smaller. So they're pretty small. OK, not bad. You, you, you've got to get this one right, OK? All right, to be in first place. OK, here we go. Toothpaste, listen to this very carefully, toothpaste contains chloride to help strengthen your teeth. Is that fact or fiction? What do you think it has got in it? Do you know the stuff? Um, fluoride. Oh, absolutely, wow, well done. Toothpaste contains fluoride, which protects your teeth against decay. You are a worthy competitor. Absolutely brilliant. Well done, Becky. Thank you. You're currently sort of in the lead. <laughs> I'm going to give you a bonus half point for getting the bit of extra information, so you're number one slot at the moment. All right? Yeah, thank Thanks. you. That's all right, thanks for your call. See you later. Bye. Bye.
If you want to have a go at our competition, science fact or science fiction, call now 08459 25 2000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. I'm Dr Chris and Dr Catherine is also here with me in the studio with you until 7 here on BBC Local Radio in the Eastern Counties. We're taking anything to do with science, technology and medicine. We'll discuss it. Hopefully we'll get you the right answer. If you want to have a go, as I say, phone now because the lines do get busy and coming up very shortly we'll be talking to Professor John Oxford about the risk of avian flu and what actually is it and what can we do about it and also Professor Pat Troop from the Health Protection Agency. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists, Dr Chris Smith, Dr Catherine Hawkins with you until 7 o'clock this week. And we're talking about the risk of flu. We're talking about what is flu, what is avian flu, where's it come from, how do we get it, how do we spread it, and what can we do about it. And here to help us with that, from the London Hospital down in Whitechapel in London, Professor John Oxford. Good evening, John. Yes, hello. Thanks for coming in. Um, We've heard a little bit from, from Paul Diggard already about the, you know, the flu is a virus, but could you just crystallise for us, what actually is the flu and where does it come from? Well, we can start what it looks like. It looks like a football with spikes sticking around the outside. And um, I like um, Paul's description, but I would say this, your idea of an escape kit, the virus has got an escape kit, because one of the, and it's very, it needs it too, because one of those spikes on the outside of the football is a mushroom-shaped thing. And that's called a neuraminidase, and that helps the virus chop its way through this um, layer of snot, as it were, which is a very, very, very important layer. In fact, we might be putting a lot of reliance on that layer when and if this virus arrives on the scene. And also, what I say, one other thing about that, that the new drugs against flu, the ones we will be depending on, they are also targeted against this mushroom as well. So it's a pretty important part of the virus. Where did it come from in the first place? The, we think the virus came from birds. We think that influenza is a, is a bird virus. It's, um, you know, 11,000 years ago when Cambridge had 250 metres of ice on it during the Ice Age. There weren't many humans around at that stage. There were plenty of birds around. And then 1,000 years later, there were probably 20 or 30, 40 humans here. And then from then on, viruses like influenza, which need a person-to-person transmission, they could spread. And at that stage... We think the virus did a leap, came from the birds into humans, and ever since, the birds have been the reservoir, the ducks and geese, they're the big silent reservoir, and we also had the virus evolving with us, and that's the position we're in at the moment. Is a bird, is a virus from one of this great bird reservoir going to leap across a new one and catch us all unawares? What stops it doing that anyway? It's presumably because there are now Mm. two distinct types of virus, bird types and human types, that it doesn't just chop and change all the time. Um, Why why should it have a barrier? Why shouldn't we just change viruses with birds continuously? Well, I mean, I can ask you, when when were you last in contact with a migrating goose or swan? Well, I saw some fly over my house yesterday. Oh, yes, but but did you you kind of rub your nose into its beak? Probably not, you see. Actually, no, I didn't. I have to admit, I didn't. So, so that underlies the main problem here. So how does the virus get? Well, what we think happens is these geese, and at this moment, tens of millions of them really are moving around Europe. They're overflying. They get tired. They come down onto a lake, pond or canal, and they excrete virus. They're silent carriers. They didn't even know they're infected. And they don't even feel unwell. No, they may not feel unwell, most of them. They let the virus go into the, into the lake. Along comes a domesticated goose or duck, picks up the virus doesn't get any symptoms either, passes the virus on to a chicken, and then the problems start. And um, why is a chicken a problem? We don't know that, really. It, it could be they pressurise the chickens with the modern farming techniques. I think it's a big unknown question. Well, you mean lots of them in one place at one yes, time? Yes, yes. And this helps the virus to spread very efficiently between them? Yes. But then how does it get into a person? Well, the, the hapless farmer, you know, the virus gets into the chicken, the hapless farmer, as it were, comes along, mars his wonderful flock, and notices that one or two of them are ill. 
you know, swollen heads looking horribly ill. ill. And then the next day later, the day later, they're all kind of lying upside down. It's, it's called wall-to-wall carpeting of feathers. Mm. And then suddenly he knows, he realises what's happening. He calls in the vet. It's the vet normally who examines the beak and pokes a, a swab at their bottom, gets in close to the thing, and the vet usually is the first sort of person to get infected and die. Oh dear! So can That's an occupational hazard of being a vet. Yes. It's, so we hear that that flu's a problem in ver- birds and and in humans. What about other animals? Well, it, it's mainly this bird reservoir and mm. humans. I mean, other all, all other animals on this planet probably get flu. I mean, we know pigs do, horses do, whales. Mm. You know, you name it, they seem to have flu. But um, obviously, we're much more interested in humans at yeah. the moment than, than we are on the, on the whales of this world. So why should this particular strain of bird flu? be an issue? Why is it more problematic than the, the strains of flu that come every year and reach our shores and, and make us feel a bit unwell for a, for a week or so? Because this is an entirely new one. This has kind of emerged, has come out from this great reservoir. I've never seen it before. No one on this planet has got any immunity to it. We're all relying on our snot, basically. That's all we've got, except for these new drugs and maybe some new vaccines. So when you say we've never seen it before, you're saying that most of us, because we've come across flu in the past, we have a degree of underlying immunity to the virus. But because this one looks so different, it gives no protection. Our, our, our pre-exposure gives no, no protection. Yes, we're very, very, very vulnerable, and that's what the worry is. But, but can't they just make a vaccine, vac- vaccine to it? I mean, what's the process well, for you, that? Well, you can stock up on antiviral drugs. I mean, the, mm. the drug, the class of drugs that blocks the mushroom on the virus, they're a very powerful class of drugs, and I think we're going to depend on those. Um, but... As regards the vaccine, which would also be very important indeed, uh, one's going to make a choice here, and I think the choice to make is to go for the virus we've got at the moment and assume it's not going to mutate too much, make some vaccines, stack up on it, and we can all relax in our beds. Because there is some evidence that the one... Because H5, this particular avian strain, has been in circulation for a little while before, and there is a, a backdated or a sort of stored version of that which has been shown to be protective if it's turned into a vaccine, hasn't it? Yes, and the most, most recent um, experiments in volunteers show that you can get some protective immunity. You might need a lot of virus inactivated virus, killed virus to do it but you, in, th- in, in practice you can get something so I think there's every reason now to press the button, make some more of this vaccine and then we can all relax a little bit We're talking to Professor John Oxford on The Naked Scientist with me Dr Chris and Dr Catherine if you'd like to ask him a question he is a leading flu expert and has actually been involved in studying the flu for many years and, and, and analysing actually one of the biggest flu epidemics of the 20th century which was the 1918 Spanish flu. If you'd like to ask him a question 08459 25 2000 you can call in and, call and talk directly to him. Peter is in Norfolk Hello Peter. Good evening Dr Chris Hello, how are you? I'm good, and how are you? Uh, very well, thank you. What, what, what's uh, on your mind? Well, uh, Professor, I wonder if you can help me on this one. Um, Dr Chris just mentioned there an epidemic. This was a word that was, was a common word when, when I was younger, uh, 40 or so years ago, and I understood what an epidemic was. The word that's being bandied around now is a pandemic, which I do not understand. Could you help me, please? Yeah, we re- really shouldn't be using it, I think. We, we got so used to talking to ourselves in the scientific world that this is a horrible word. But basically it means a, a global outbreak. A pandemic virus is a global virus. You know, the world is its oyster. Really, flu is the only one I think is pandemic, that it can start anywhere in the world, as it did in 1918, as it did in 1957 and 68, started in China in the last two, in the, in the first one probably in Europe, and then sweeps around the world. You know, the whole world's its oyster. That's a pandemic virus, a very threatening virus. As opposed to an epidemic being... An epidemic being like an outbreak in Norfolk, 
really, and and maybe spreading to London and maybe going up to Lancashire, that, that, and not going very very much very very far else in in Europe, which sometimes happens in a year. You will, will get influenza in the uh, United Kingdom, and nothing much happening in Germany. That's an epidemic, so normally restricted, but what? pandemic sweeping the whole world. When we had the Asian flu epidemic years ago, it was an epidemic, and yet it, inv- it involved the whole of Europe, the whole of the UK, and, and various other places. But it was an epidemic. Uh, have we got a bit mad on pandemic now? <laughs> well, well, I, I rather disagree with about the uh, the Asian one because I view that as a pandemic because it started yeah. in Southeast Asia, swept the world. We got it in. You got it in Norfolk. I got it in Dorset at the time. Um, you know, we all had it. Well, I, I would view that as a pandemic, actually. It wasn't called that in those days. No. It was called an epidemic. Yeah, it was, it was probably that um, we, we've come across this horrible word ever since and we've been stuck with it. But it, in, in modern terminology, looking back, which is easy to do, um, I would view that as a pandemic in 57 and also in 1968 as well. Thanks for um, getting that clarified, Peter. That, that was a good question. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Uh, OK, I hadn't come in for that, but yeah, all right, go on. Well, you never know, you might win something. You never know. Here we go. 10%, 10% of human dry weight comes from bacteria. 10% of you, you owe 10% of your weight to bacteria. Is that fact or fiction? Uh, fact. Well done. Human skin has about 100,000 bacteria per square centimetre, and the gut also contains about 10 trillion bacteria. That's enough to outnumber our, our own body cells 10 to 1. Very good, Peter. Next question. Your new blood cells are made in your liver. Science fact or science fiction? Fact. No, I'm afraid. New, new blood cells come from the bone marrow. Right. Okay, you've got to get this one right, Peter, to stay in the race, okay? Okay, And we talked about photocopiers earlier. This one's spot on on time. People photocopying their bottoms are the cause of 1% of all photocopier breakdowns worldwide. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Uh, fiction. How many do you think it is? Probably about 10%. Close. <laughs> the noble art of uh, derriere photocopiography, I think is the technical term, actually accounts worldwide for a massive 23% of photocopier breakdowns. And I've never done it. Uh, I don't believe you. You haven't lived, Peter, <laughs> yeah. till you photocopied your bum. Honestly, can I also say just one other thing? Yes. We spent years teaching our children to refer to nose mess and not that dreadful four-letter word that you've been using. Uh, beginning with an S. It's fine to call it that. <laughs> what, mucus? It's not. <laughs> it's not good to say that word, then, in your book. Not in our house. <laughs> Three strikes and you're right for puns, Chris. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, for your call. It's been great to have you on the show. All right, see you later. Yeah. Molly's in Hartford. Hello, Molly. Hello. Good evening. How are you? I'm OK, you? Yeah, very well, thanks. What would you like to know? Um, why do we cough up phlegm? Why do we cough phlegm up? Yeah. Well, actually, not a lot of people do. So, m- most of the phlegm that you produce, you don't realise it, but you're actually swallowing it. Sounds a bit ugh, but it's absolutely true. When, uh, when you have, uh, well, your lungs, as you know from Derek and Dave's experiment earlier, all of the airways are lined with this sticky stuff that uh, Peter doesn't like us saying the word snot, so we'll use the word mucus. This sticky stuff's there to mop up things, including bacteria, bugs, viruses, particles from the air. And the lining of your lungs have got these tiny fibres on them that beat and they beat all in the same direction and they create this tide, if you like, which pushes the mucus out of your lungs and up to your throat. Now, if you get a lot of mucus and you cough, sometimes some of it comes flying out of your mouth, but most of it, unbeknown to you, actually goes down into your stomach. And that's very important because, because it's got all these nasty things locked up in it, it carries them down into your stomach and your stomach's full of acid and the acid in the stomach kills all the bugs and then it 
carries the rest of what's left of them into your intestines, and in the walls of your intestines there's special patches called payers' patches, and that's where the immune system learns what sorts of things are doing the rounds in the air around you, and what sorts of things it has to mount an attack against, and what sorts of things it has to ignore. So actually, you swallow most of your phlegm, you don't just cough it all up. But when you do have an excess production, coughing it up helps to get rid of it. So there you go. Does that clear that one up? Yep. Well, I'm pleased that we've got a satisfied customer. Do you want to have a go at the quiz? Yeah, OK. All right, then. Chocolate grows on trees. Is that fact or fiction? Fiction. I'm afraid that's actually fact. The, ca the cacao tree, I don't know how you pronounce it. Cocoa or cacao. Cacao tree mm. produces cocoa, which is refined and used to make chocolate. Next question, Molly. You've got to get this right to stay in the race, OK? You ready? Yeah. OK, in a single day... The average human produces half a litre of saliva. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Fact? Mm, no, unfortunately, no. <laughs> Sorry, dear. Do you think it's actually more or less, Molly? Less. Not quite, it's actually more. Yeah, most of us actually produce about 1.7 litres. That's nearly two litres of saliva every day. Sorry, Molly, not this week. All right? Yeah. Well done. See you soon. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Let's have a quick chat to, to Lydia. Hello, Lydia. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Go on, then. What's your question? What is the longest period someone's had the flu for? That's a John question. John, what's the longest that people get the flu for? How long's the flu last? It usually it's about three or four days. And, 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 a, and someone like your age, um, um, Lydia, it, it probably would be four days, five days. But we've known people who had it much longer maybe eight, nine, or even ten days. So it's really bad luck, though. Most people have it, have it, get over it, and get back to school again. People who are pregnant have it for much longer, don't they, John? Because their immune system's a little bit depressed because of pregnancy. Yeah, some people, that's right. Some people who are in hospital and they're being immunosuppressed, you know, with, with drugs and things, they can, they can um, kind of have it for, for months or at least excrete the virus. Have but you I, had I, the I flu, Lydia? Um, no. Yeah, you're very lucky. Mm. Have you had your flu jab? Um, I think, no. Are you going to have your flu jab? Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? OK, then. Grasshoppers here with their wings. Fact or fiction? Fact. Ah, oh, grasshoppers actually here with their legs, waving them in the air to tell where a sound is coming from. I've seen from. you doing that as well, Catherine. What, waving my... Yeah, that's well. not to tell where a sound's <laughs> coming from, though, Chris. <laughs> Just because you've fallen over a bit tipsy. Yeah. Exactly. The pressure cooker was invented over 300 years ago. The pressure cooker was invented 300 years ago. Fact or fiction, Lydia? It is. It was invented by Dennis Papin in 1674 and originally called a digester. He claimed that it could turn a felt hat to jelly in four and a half hours. Maybe we should try that in the science kitchen, uh, Chris. Yeah, but that really is a case of eating your hat, isn't it? <laughs> uh, right, you've that's got to get, it. Lydia, you've <laughs> got to get this right, OK, to stay in the race. Are you listening carefully? Yeah. You breathe in nitrogen to survive. You breathe nitrogen to survive. Fact or fiction? Ah, correct. Again, we depend on oxygen in the air for our survival. There are some bacteria that can use nitrogen, but not animals. Well done, Lydia. Two out of three. OK. All right, then. Yeah. See you later. Thanks. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. Dr Chris and Dr Catherine here with you until 7 o'clock. We've got about 15 minutes left of the programme. If you want to get a general science question or something about the flu, avian flu, infections, viruses, call now 08459 25 is our phone number, or you can email me, chris, at nakedscientist.com. In a second, we're going to be talk talking to Professor Pat Troop from the Health Protection Agency.
baffled by biology? Yep. Foxed by physics? Oh, yes. To get your question answered, call the Naked Scientist now on 08459-25-2000 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Good evening, Pat. So what actually is the Health Protection Agency? We ought to tell people a little bit about it. Oh, well, we're a, a specialist public health organisation and our, our job is to protect people against infections like flu or meningitis or uh, food poisoning. Uh, we try and find it when it happens and then um, uh, mount a response along with doctors and nurses in the, in the health service to, to stop it spreading and then hopefully put a stop to it. So that's one of the things we do. We, we do similar things for chemical spills and radiation and lots of other things, but I think for tonight the infection bit is the most important. So so what, what, oh, I was, oh, sorry, Catherine, you go ahead. I was probably going to ask the same question you were. Um, so what preparations have you been making? What response have you had to this new um, problem with potential problem with the avian flu? Well, the first thing we need to know is what's, where is it? Where's it got to? Mm. Which countries is it in? Is it likely to get here? So we work with people all over the world, so we know exactly what's happening, where it is, what kind of... Where, is the virus changing? You know, can we keep an eye on it? So we need... Not, what, so that way we know what to look for if it comes. And then we've got all sorts of systems in place to try and pick it up the moment it arrives. Um, you may f uh, know something called NHS Direct, which is where people can phone up and get help from nurses who are on the other end of the phone. And we analyse the information that goes there every day, so we know exactly... You ah, know, so, you, so if people come yeah, in and say, I've yeah, got a head cold headache, exactly. I've been keeping turkeys in Vietnam. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, but you, most of it is we pick up how many people phone in with coughs and colds or sneezes or some, uh, something like that. But what about uh, actually getting samples of the virus, Pat? Because well, that's happening yeah. too, isn't it? We can, we can do that as well. I mean, we've got samples of the virus at the moment, Moment. And what we've done is work out how to test for it. So that in our laboratories, I mean, one's here in Cambridge, and they've got some tests, and they've been working on some tests, so that as soon as it comes, we can test for it, know if it's the same one, know if it's one that's going to spread badly. And so we know how many people are getting ill, we know which viruses are there, and so we can all swing into action. And, and you also look just for general flu anyway, don't you? Because there are GP practices that, that you talk to and say, can you act as a sort of scout station, a spotter practice for us, and keep an eye on what's circulating, just so we can keep tabs on what the normal flu is doing? Yeah, we keep, that, we keep that going all the time. We've got all sorts of systems like that, through the GPs, through the hospitals, through NHS Direct, through the labs. So all the time we know what's going on, what's where, is it flu, is it other viruses, and that way we can tell the doctor the nurses and everybody else what to treat and how to how to cope with it. I would I would have thought that with with humans it's a little bit easier to to monitor what's going on. But how can you, for example, with um, control for um, migratory birds coming over to find out that sort of thing that, that's going on and, and or looking at livestock? That's much more difficult. I mean mm. the the vets do look for things. I mean mm. the vets obviously monitor things. What's happening with the large chicken flocks? You can look at yeah. those because so many now, as you know, in these very large chicken farms. But they're doing a special survey at the moment on birds that are coming over the geese and the ducks to see if they can see how many of them are carrying uh, flu and whether or not any of them are, are um, you know, are getting ill with it as well. And so they're asking all the people who are out there bird watching and, uh, you know, all, all, oh, all shooting. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's a real community effort. Yeah, if, if you go out on the East Coast and something, you know, because we've got a lot on the East Coast, haven't we, all the ducks and the geese and migrating birds, and they're asking anybody who's out there looking at those birds or in some cases shooting them, just seeing if they're finding birds that are ill and uh, uh, who might have the flu and then they can get the vets to come and test them. Oh. So Pat, talk us through, if, uh, if we detected a case tomorrow in the UK, what would get, be put into action? What would we do? 
Well, first of all, we would first of all check that it is the flu, because some um, and it's the right one, because there are many different kinds of flu as you've heard, and we you know we don't want to go off with any red herrings. Um, we would then try and find out who they've also been in contact with, to see who else might have the flu, so we can try and contain it in a very small area. So one, once you've got an infection like this, the most important thing then is to stop it spreading. So you try and encourage, find out who else has got it encourage everybody then to do the normal things you know if you've got flu you stay at home you don't spread it to everybody else you put your hand in front of your mouth when you cough we you wash your hand all those kind of very basic things we get out to everybody and saying do what you can to stop it spreading don't go to work with it all that kind of stuff also what happens then is some of these drugs you've heard about. Uh, we have got these antiviral drugs and for people who are likely to be very ill with the disease they would also be looking about whether or not to give them the drugs. We haven't yet got a vaccine if you, as you've heard so really at the moment it's all that basic hygiene stuff and keeping away from other people and then also using those, those drugs and at the moment we really don't have much more. Um, and, but it's up to a lot of us to, to as, as I say, not go after the football match if we've got flu. Will you be stopping people from uh, going to cinemas? Will you, will you be saying we're going to close sporting events and stop people congregating in large numbers in certain places in order to stop this happening? It might happen. I mean, uh, in the early stages, you wouldn't necessarily do that uh, because in the early stages, we hope that, you know, we will be picking up the early spread. But if it started to spread very widely... Um, we may have to say that don't gather in large places because all you'll do is spread it further. At what point are people most infectious, if you like, and most likely to pass on the virus in in the life cycle of the virus when you have it, or is that difficult to... Well, well John knows more than me, but it's you, you can be infectious as soon as you've uh, been in contact, can't you? Yeah, more or less, within 24 hours anyway. So you don't always feel ill before you... You know, you can be passing mm. it on before you realise that you're ill. Um, and that's part of the problem with flu, is that that's why it spreads so quickly. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris, and with Dr Catherine here with you until 7, taking your science questions. 08459 25 2000 is the number to call, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. I'd like to acknowledge I got an email from Joe Williams about the, the Coriolis effect when I was talking earlier um, about the question of why water goes down the plug hole the same re the, a certain way in some hemispheres and others. Uh, what's really interesting, she says that the effect is actually far too weak to account for what we see, and this is actually more of an effect of the shape of the... Um, the hole down which it drains and, uh, and then gives me a nice reference for the French engi engineer uh, Ga uh, Gaspard Gustave de Coriolis who lived in 1792 to 1843. So thank you for that, Joe. I haven't got time to read the whole thing out but um, I, take, I take your point. So thank you for calling us in. If you'd like to drop me a line, um, 08459 25 2000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. We're here every week between 6 and 7 stripping down science for you. Next week, actually, we're going to be talking to Ian Burgess who works on how, how bugs and various biting insects can spread diseases and uh, there's one or two of those about too, including malaria, and he's going to come and talk to us about that. And William Foster from Cambridge University is going to come in and talk to us about how social insects like ants and bees and hornets and wasps all live together and how they talk to each other, how they get on, how they don't get on, and how they coordinate their families and that kind of thing. And uh, B. Wilson, and there's no pun in this name, it really is her name, B. Wilson's written a book called The Hive, and she's going to come and talk about her book. Let's have a quick chat to Richard, who's in Colchester. Hello, Richard. Hello. How are you? Fine, thanks. What can we do for you? Um, I have a question to ask. Go on then, fire away. Why do you sneeze when you look at the sun? Oh, now that is a fantastic question. Does anyone in here actually know the answer? When you sneeze when you look yeah, at the sun? Yeah, does anyone do this? 
No, yeah, we're waiting no, to hear, Chris. No, it, no, I do know the answer to this, Richard. <laughs> it's called the photic sneeze reflex, this. It's actually a defined entity, and about 20% of the population have this. When you look at bright sunlight from being in a dark room, suddenly you have this irresistible urge to start sneezing. Is that what you get? Yeah. Yeah. Th this has been investigated by the US military because they're obviously quite worried about their jet, their fighter pilots if they suddenly flew into the sun going into a sneezing fit. And when, you when you're flying along at 1,200 miles an hour, that could be a bit of a problem if you've got your eyes shut for 0.3 of a second, which is how long a sneeze lasts for, 0.3 of a second. Because at that kind of speed, that's, that's like half a mile, isn't it? It's a pretty long distance. So uh, they're, they're quite worried about it. They don't actually know precisely what's going on at the neurological, in other words, the nerve level in your brain. But what we think happening is that there's a bit of cross wiring goes on because when you look at the sun your pupil closes up it gets much much smaller in order to stop so much light going into your eyes so you can still see clearly but sometimes that gets a little bit muddled up and it triggers the part of your brain which is concerned with saying oh my nose must be irritating and so it triggers a sneeze instead and about 20 percent of a set as i say of people have this little bit of cross wiring in their nose and this makes them sneeze in the old days people thought it was because bright light made your eyes water a bit and the and the tears went down into your nose and tickled your nose but when they did some experiments Richard they found that it was happening too quickly for that to be the case so it must be something to do with the same reflex that makes you blink and make your pupil get smaller that's the best I can do I'm afraid is that all right yeah happy with that yeah fancy having a go at winning some slime Yes, please. Or a DVD? Yes, please. All right, then. IQ, which you've obviously got a very high one, it's a measure of intelligence, of course, stands for intelligence quota. Do you think that's true or false? True. Sorry, I pressed the wrong button, silly me. Sorry, Richard, it wasn't right, though, I'm afraid. It actually t it stands for intelligent quotient and is used at the measure as a measure of the po population's reasoning power. Okie dokie. Next question, Richard. You've got to get this right to stay in the game, OK? OK. When an aircraft takes off, your body momentarily weighs less because of the acceleration of the plane. Is that science fact or science fiction? Going to have to hurry you. Fiction. Well done. Your weight actually increases when you take off because the plane is accelerating you away from the surface on the Earth. On the other hand, when you fly through turbulence and the plane suddenly drops, producing that awful stomach-in-your-mouth feeling, your weight decreases because you are momentarily in freefall. OK, you've got to get this one fall. right, all right? Okay. Here we go. Plants and trees look green because they absorb green light from the sun that they then turn into energy and help them grow. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fiction. Well done again. Plants look green because they contain the substance chlorophyll, which reflects green light but absorbs the light of other colours. The energy in the absorbed light is used to drive chemical reactions in the plants that makes it grow. Well done, Richard. Two out of three. Brilliant. I'm going to read this one very quickly, John, because this is um, relevant to you. Uh, it's from David Griffiths, who's listening to us in Vancouver in Canada. He sent me an email. Uh, uh, I believe you'll be talking about viruses this week. Does the number of viruses entering your body result in different severities or durations of illnesses? Fact or fiction, I guess. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I think, I think you, I throw the textbook at you. Um, but I think, actually, the, the common sense, I think, would tell us is the fewer viruses you get in your nose at one time, the longer the incubation period is going to be. I and, think you'll end up the with the same disease. But then, so more or less severe? Uh, I, don't, I think you'll end up with the same severity, but it'll take um, a bit longer to, to, to get to that point if it's just a couple of viruses rather than 200. John is on the A12. Hello, John. Hello there. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Fire away. I haven't got a cold anyway. Well, you sparked this off on me, actually, saying that you weigh 13 tonnes on Jupiter. Yes. I've got, suddenly got a vision of one of these cartoon characters getting squished. <laughs> what would happen to you if you stood on Jupiter? What would happen to you? 
Yeah. Well, the, the gravitational pull. Well, as as Catherine pointed out, your 50 kilos of your body mass when you add the gravitational effect of a giant planet like Jupiter, and let's, let's remember Jupiter is huge, you could fit the Earth inside Jupiter thousands of times over, it's massive, mm-hmm. then if you got under that kind of gravitational pressure, of course your body would suddenly weigh 13 and a half tonnes. And as you can probably imagine, that's like a bus standing on your head. So the bones in your feet, which are actually set up to withstand 50 kilograms of weight pushing through them, would now have to withstand 13 and a half tonnes of weight pushing through them. So that's quite a serious issue, uh, and I don't... <laughs> I don't, think, I don't think even the best hip replacement would be expected to withstand that kind of load. No. So you would basically end up... Yeah. Flat. I think you probably would, yeah. yeah. Mm. Sorry to disappoint. Were you thinking of taking a holiday there or, you know, near future? Not in the near future. <laughs> Look, we've got about two minutes. We, could, we, we can do a very quick um, run through the quiz if you want. Do you want to go? Yes, I'll have a go. Your intestines are over 30 minutes long, uh, 30 metres long, fact or fiction? Fact. I'm afraid the small intestine is about six, five or six metres and the large intestine is about one and a half metres. So the total length is about seven metres, not a 30. Got to get this right, John. Yep. Seawater contains about 20% salt by weight. Fact or fiction? Fact. It's actually three and a half percent or three and a half times more concentrated than your body fluid, which is why drinking seawater is a bad idea. Thanks very much for your call, John. Thank you. Sorry we didn't uh, manage to give you a prize this week. That's okay. Thank you. Mike's in Malden. Hello, Mike. Hello there. Got a quick flu question for us in... Well, we've got to squeeze it into about one minute, so fire away. Yeah, my wife's got a letter from the doctor saying she can have a flu jab. Mm. And and it says on there if she has an egg allergy... Yeah. ...not to attend. Right. John. Um, This is not the the flu everybody's talking about. This is just an ordinary, normal... Sure. We're going to have to hurry this along, Mike. I I know exactly what the question is, and I know John will know the answer to this. Go on, John. Yeah. The the flu vaccine, is the virus is grown in eggs, and so there will be a bit of smidgen of contaminating egg in the final vaccine. So if she's allergic, she might get a reaction, so it's better not to go along. So it doesn't mean all flus come from birds? Uh, yeah, they, they do, but that's not part of the equation as regards the vaccine. Oh. So she will be advised not to have the vaccine if she's allergic to eggs. Well, she isn't. It, was just, uh, it just made me set me thinking. Yeah. It's yes. something that's jumped the species sort of thing. Oh, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah. No, it's to do with the egg in which the virus has grown rather than the fact that the virus ultimately went back to a bird. Oh, right. Quite nice thinking, though. Yeah, OK. Well done. You got your answer to that. I'm afraid we haven't got enough time for the, to have a go at the quiz, though, Mike. Right, I've All right. No OK, then. Thanks for calling in. Bye. Been a pleasure to have you. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. You are, of course, listening to the Naked Scientists podcast, which is freely available from the nakedscientists.com website. We're very grateful to Anne Gray from sciencesleuth.co.uk who donated this week's Slippery Slime Lab prize, which was won by Richard. More fun and frolics available from her website, sciencesleuth.co.uk. The other big prize on tonight's show was the 2006 Encyclopedia Britannica DVD, which was kindly donated by Band and Brown Communications. Don't worry if you didn't win it this week, as there'll be one up for grabs on every single show until Christmas time. So if you want to have a go at winning it, just send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com with your questions. Now, another reason to drop me a line is to take part in a new feature for The Naked Scientist because we want your science podcasts to include in our podcast and our science radio show. The guy who's going to be sorting it all out with Petro's podcast picks is Naked Scientist producer Petro Minch. Petro, what are you looking for? 
Well, Chris, we're looking for, obviously, science-based podcasts, and we're offering podcast listeners the chance of their podcast being included in our podcast, which I think is a first. So we'd like podcasts maximum length of one and a half minutes. If it's any longer, we will listen to it, but obviously, depending on how many we get, it might take a while. And obviously, we want them to be preferably funny, and they have to be something scientific. So if you're going somewhere exciting that's scientifically relevant to the top of a volcano or perhaps to the bottom of the ocean, get recording and then send it to us. Chris at NakedScientist.com. Petro will have a listen to it, and the best ones will make it not only into the Naked Scientist podcast, but onto the Naked Scientist live science radio show each week. So get recording now and send them to Chris at NakedScientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. I'd like to say a very big thank you to our two guests this evening, Professor John Oxford from London, Professor Pat Troop from the Health Protection Agency. I'd like to say a big thank you to co-presenter Catherine Hawkins, who is here this evening. Thank you, Catherine. And I would also like to say a very big thank you to the production team uh, at The Naked Scientist, uh, coming to you here from BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, Petro Minch and Anna Lacey. Thank you very much for all your efforts this evening. But above all, I'd like to thank everyone at home for giving up your evening to listen to us and for making your contributions, not just here in the Eastern region, but right across the world, um, because we've had some emails from every single country pretty much now. If you want to drop us a line and take part in the programme, we're introducing a new feature, which is getting your podcasts into our programme. So you can send in your science-related programmes, little po- little podcasts of one or two minutes, if you're doing something exciting, send it to me here at The Naked Scientist, Chris at Naked Scientist, and the best ones will get you onto the programme. Have a great weekend, what's left of it, and next week on the show we'll be talking to, as I say, Ian Burgess, William Foster, and, and also B. Wilson about social insects and bugs and how they all live together and get on and find food the naked scientists supported by the welcome trust thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in r&d over the next two years the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities the nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.